Well, welcome. First Sunday in 2018. I love getting together with you guys. I love every time that we can meet and fellowship. I'm kind of a social bug in some ways, but uh, there's times where I really want to be alone as well. Not left alone, uh, just alone. Uh, I, love, I love quiet, and it seems like I love quiet more after our grandkids head home. That for, for like, let's just have a little quiet for a moment here. Um, I mentioned Wednesday night, and by the way, we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 1 and uh, chapter 3 primarily. I mentioned Wednesday night this uh, word that has come to me, and I approach every year like, Lord, what, where can my focus be? Where, where can I um, put my energies? And this word came to my mind, reconstruct um, or restructure, and I thought about that means maybe taking things apart and redoing it. So I, I said, am I supposed to look at the structure of my life and break it down and reconstruct it so that I can get further along in my journey? Um, and I think that's a step all of us really need to take is to reconstruct. As long as we tell ourselves, even if it's just internally, that we're too accustomed to how we do things. We're too accustomed to how we do life. And to change it at this point, well, there's not much of a prospect for that. I think what we'll end up with is empty, mindless repetitions and habits. And we're not any different. There's so many things in, in the lyrics of some of these songs. I, I thought about this morning, how can we think about the plan that God has for us, the plan that God has for us, not just as a whole, but individually. How can we uh, discern where our boundaries are, that we, we think, well, there's no boundary, where our boundaries are, where have we limited ourselves in perspective of what God wants to do in our lives? In some ways, we live within a walled city if we have those boundaries. They may not, we might not even be paying attention to it, but if, if there's nothing different in our lives, how do we know we're growing? If there's nothing discernible different in our lives, how, how can we measure our advancement in our walk with the Lord if, if we can't point to something Different. So I've, I've noticed that, uh, you know, my evenings have changed and my mornings have changed. And um, it's just interesting because as you get older, you, you want to go to bed earlier. But uh, I'm going to bed, like, really earlier. Uh, and, and I don't know, it's not altogether intentional, but that means I'm way early in getting up. And I'm, I'm able to think about things and the, the scriptures that I'm dwelling on are speaking to me. And, and it seems like God is constantly reminding me of late that he wants more from me. He wants more for me. He wants more in me. And the scripture says this, that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And what that means is this. That whatever gifts God has placed in your life, He has not changed His mind. Amen. 
and the calling that he has on your life. I'm not talking about a, a calling like, like more people are called than those who stand behind a pulpit and those that go to a mission field. We're all called to do something in the kingdom of God. And whatever calling he has on your life, he has not changed his mind. He still has the same purpose for you. He still has the same calling for you. And the gifts that he's placed in your life. One of the great tragedies. I, I, I saw this a little bit yesterday as we went to visit someone that is recovering from an accident. And, and just members of his family. And some of the things that I was discussing with the, the minister I was with. It's really sad when you see people with gifts and calling. The gifts that God has put in their lives. And they're not being used. They're not being used in a tangible way within the community of faith, within the church, within that communion that we share together as believers. The the gifts are just laying dormant. And I do not believe that God gave us any gifts for them to just lay on the sideline. That he wants to use those gifts. Sometimes a holdup is with us. Sometimes in our own lack of confidence, our own uh, weaknesses, we... We, we come to the conclusion, well, how can God use me? But sometimes I think the holdup is our view of God. And our view of God is not to the degree of his greatness and his power and his majesty and, and the awesomeness of who he is. And so I've titled this message this morning, How Big Is God? That's not what my original title was. It was How Great Is Our God? But How Big Is God? And I know that's probably not a proper question because it's a question of uh, quantitative. It's it's a question of measure. Well, God can't be measured, but how big is he to you? How big should he be to us? Scripture goes on to tell us, and we should not get too far away from the opening words of this book. In the beginning, God created... Bara, out of nothing, the heavens and the earth. Scripture also tells us that nothing that's in existence is there outside of the creative work of God. Everything that is was made by him. That's how big he is. We are sometimes fascinated with space, are we not? I was talking to someone earlier before, um, even before Sunday school, about, uh, you know, the, was it, the last Jedi that's out there. And, you know, I, you know, if you would pay me some money, I might go see it. But that's the way I feel about it. I'm sorry. I'm not putting anybody down that goes and sees it. But, you know, we, we come across this term science fiction, and it's really a misuse of the word science. There's no science to it. <coughs> But we're, we're so captivated by space. I mean, the record number of people is, it goes to Star Wars movies. Amen. That's great. But it's not real. It's not true. But we have a real space that is enormous, that God created. And we had a president back in 1961 in his inaugural speech that said that... And, and everybody thought he had lost his mind when John Kennedy says, we want to 
put a man on the moon. And in eight years, I was sitting in front of a television set, freshly out of high school, graduated from high school, watching Neil Armstrong step onto the moon. In that short a time, we went from just sending John Glenn up to orbit a few times and come down to actually putting someone in. And the real neat thing is we got him there and we got him back. That's how fascinated we are with space. But sadly, this month is also a reminder of the uh, shuttle Challenger disaster. And we've seen the tragedies also with the shuttle Columbia on reentry. We've lost two shuttles. How big is God? How big is God? Ten years before I watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, Stuart Hamlin wrote a song titled, How Big is God? And John Hall could really sing it. Well, I'm not going to try to sing it for you today. But I am going to read you the opening lyrics. This is ten years and two years before John Kennedy, this is Stuart Hammond writing this song. Though men may strive to go beyond the reef of space, to crawl beyond the distant glimmering stars, this world's a room so small within my master's house, the open sky but a portion of his yard. How big is God? How big and wide his vast domain. To try to tell these lips can hardly start. He, he's big enough to rule his mighty universe, yet small enough to live within my heart. And yet when we hold a newborn baby and look into the face of an absolute mystery, isn't it? Tiny little fingernails. Just the wonder. There's, it's indescribable when we hold a newborn baby and know that there could be so much of a fragile nature but so much of an enduring nature of a little one. Somehow, some people here have known the pain of infertility and how wonderful that pain is absorbed when there's this arrival of the long-awaited little one. And the Bible tracks certain people, certain couples in the Bible that dealt with infertility, right? Maybe the most recognizable one is two people that's well on in their years and the father of our faith, Abraham and Sarah. But then you also have that New Testament couple that mirrors that, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But I want to touch on a couple that had the same problem, Elkanah and his wife. Now, everybody remembers Elkanah, right? Great, great person. He's all through the Bible. Not, not really. Why do we not know more about Elkanah? Because his, one of his two wives commands the attention. He mentioned something in Sunday school. Elkanah had decided to marry Peninnah and Hannah, have two wives. Peninnah had several sons and daughters. Didn't give how many, but she is birthed to Elkanah, her husband, sons and daughters. 
But how many would be shocked to know that there was trouble in the home between the two wives? Really? Peninnah continually harassed Hannah about being childless. Fancy that. In fact, in verse 6, in 1 Samuel 1, it says that she provoked her in order to irritate her. Adam and Eve, one to one. You go beyond that, there's problems. In verse 7, it says that she went, and she did this year after year of harassing Hannah, rubbing it into her face that she was able to have children and Hannah wasn't. To the point that it said that Hannah would be brought to tears and could not eat. Hannah ends up going to the tabernacle. If you're tracking this in chapter 1, I'm not reading all of it. I will read chat, uh, verse 11 here in just a moment. But Hannah ends up at the tabernacle in Shiloh. This is still the portable tent that Moses built as the house of the Lord. And it's now settled into Shiloh, which is in uh, Samaria, what well, became Samaria. And so she makes her way out of Ephraim to the house of the Lord... And she's in there and she's praying and, and she is broken hearted. I don't know how much of the other wife had caused her to be so burdened. But there she is and she gives this vow to God in verse 11. Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son... Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will be used upon his head. And she continued to the point, I'm just summarizing, she continued to the point of such a heaviness and such a weight upon her that she was no longer praying with audible sounds. And Eli was watching, the, the priest that was there, that was in charge. He was watching her. And when she started going in that direction of her lips moving and no sound and the sorrow and all, he just assumed that she had arrived there under the influence of alcohol. And he approaches. He says, Why'd you, how long do you want to stay drunk? Be done with your wine. And she explains to him that she wasn't like that at all. That, that didn't beer or, or wine didn't have anything to do with what was going on in her life. It was... And she explained to him how burdened she was about not being able to be pregnant. And after he heard her out in verse 17, he speaks a blessing over her. He says, go in peace and may God, the God of Israel, grant you what you have asked of him. And as you read the rest of the chapter, she changes like that. She gets up, she goes get something to eat. Her face is no longer downcast. She goes home. And in the intimacy with her husband, she gets pregnant and she has this little baby and she names him Samuel because she had asked of God. Why does this reflect the greatness of God? I'm going to share a few things with you. There's three things from just that part of the story that we can learn. Now later on, he speaks a blessing over them that the son they gave, and she gave Samuel to 
the service of the Lord after he was weaned. And Eli spoke this blessing that may God give them back what they had given to him. She ended up having three boys and two daughters after that. But here's three things we can learn from this. You've got to trust God's timing, not your own. You will never give more to God than what he has given you already or will give you. And the third is this. Don't doubt God's purpose in your life. Why does this matter to us? Because Hannah was really a nobody. Elkanah was really a nobody. If you read, they were from the the family of Zeph. You are as familiar with Zeph as you are with Elkanah. And it says they came from the hills. They were hillbillies. They were nobodies. And yet God took someone out of, out of remote region because she was so serious. She was giving a child that would change history in Israel. He became the nation's prophet. People would come to him and ask for him, where are the, our, our donkeys? We can't find our donkeys. Can you get a word from God? And he would know what's happened to him. That's how Saul met Samuel. But they, they would come to him, and, and when he came into town, it was the biggest thing in town. Samuel, the, the nation's prophet. And it was all because God did something great in Hannah's life when she was really no prominent person whatsoever. And you see in chapter 3 that Samuel's this little boy, and he's in one room sleeping at the tabernacle, and Eli's sleeping in another room, and, and God calls him by name, and he jumps up and runs into Eli and says, oh, you called me? And he says, no, I didn't call you. And he, goes, he says, go back and lay down. And he goes back, and he hears his name, Samuel. And he jumps up, and he runs back to Eli, and he says, you, you called me? He says, no, I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. Third time, he hears his name called again, Samuel. He, j- he jumps up and runs back in and awakes Eli, and he says, uh, you called me. He says, no, I didn't call you, but if you hear your name called again, just say this, Lord, speak, for your servant is listening. And from a child, Samuel became acquainted with the voice of the Lord. It was the Lord called him, and the Lord gave him an earth-shaking prophecy. And he's like, I'm about to do something in this country. In fact, I'm just going to refer to it from the message. He says, I'm getting ready to do something in Israel that is going to shake everybody up and get their attention. And I'm going to punish Eli for all the sins that he and his sons have committed. And the sentence of that was carried out. Why is it such a fascinating story? Because the most leaked least likely of people. And this is why God calls the least likely, the unlikely, to do the uncommon. Because the next place he tells Samuel to go after you know, Saul's kingship sours, he tells Samuel, go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse. And I really think probably the village of Bethlehem at that point 
when someone says, walks in and says, where's Jesse's house? Oh, you, yeah, Jesse's over there. Because I don't think there were many people that lived in Bethlehem. It was a very small village. It was insignificant. It was a, sm- it was a small place. And Jesse is so excited that Samuel's coming to his house. He's got food ready. He's got everything ready. And he's got seven of his sons lined up for Samuel to look at. And Samuel sees Eliab. And he thinks, that's the next king of Israel. And he hears God said, nope, it's not him. You're looking on how tall and handsome he is. You're looking on the external he said, but I see the man's heart. No. Shema gets up. No. The next son, no. Seven no's. And Samuel looks at Jesse and he says, is this all the sons you got? He says, no, there's one more. He's out tending the sheep, the youngest one. He said, go get him. Who knows how old David was. He could have been 13, 16 Probably not older than that. But when he walks in, the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, There is Israel's next king. And he pulls out this flask of oil. And what I like is that seven of his older brothers are there. They're, they think they're the one. And they watch their runt little brother have oil poured on him from the prophet of the nation and declared to be the next king of Israel. It was not a good day for them. (laughs) It was not a good day. David walks in, and God takes the most unlikely young kid and declares him as the next king of Israel. Something the creator of the universe said to the prophet is this. You look on the external. I look on the heart. How great is God? According to the song, he's great enough to rule his mighty universe, but he's also small enough to live in your heart. I wish I could describe what I'm I'm about to show you, but Louis Giglio describes it a lot better. So watch this. To worship. This is an amazing thought. A God who is indescribable. You say, well, how do you know that? All you have to do is walk outside on a dark night and look up into the sky. And you will know when you look up that this God we're worshiping tonight is beyond our wildest dream. The scripture says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The starry host by the breath of his mouth. We live in a little subdivision in the universe called the Milky Way Galaxy, in case you didn't know, that's where you live. Some of you are thinking you live in Shady Grove. No, you're living in the Milky Way Galaxy. That's your subdivision in the universe, a very big universe that we have to use something called a light year to get around in. You say, well, what's a light year? Well, that's how fast light travels in one year, and we know it's flying 186,000 miles a second. So if light goes 186,000 miles a second for a whole year, it goes 5.88 trillion miles in a year, and that's the measurement 
are one of the main measurements we use to get around in the universe that God has created. That's how big it is. The foot, not going to help you in God's universe. The yard, of no value to you whatsoever in God's universe. The mile, insignificant. The kilometer, mat, uh, not going to help you uh, getting around in God's universe. We have to use a ruler that is 5.88 trillion miles long to measure things in God's universe. And our home subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy, just came into being. It, cons- it's con- it consists of billions of stars, just our subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy. Not hundreds, not millions, not hundreds of millions, billions of stars in our home subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy. And scientists say that there are hundreds of billions of other subdivisions and galaxies in the known universe. This shot is where we live. It's a little snapshot of the Milky Way galaxy. If you zoom into this star-forming region, see something pretty amazing. This particular shot is a close-up of a star-forming region in our subdivision taken by a friend of ours named Dr. David Block, who's an astronomer down at Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we were down there a few months ago, and he was telling us that if we were to count the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, one star per second, So we just started with any one of these. I don't know which one you want to pick. Um, Let's just start with this one right here. And we, because I can reach it. And we start one, two, three, four, five. That looks like one, but I'm close enough to see it's two that are close together. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Let's go back over here. Twelve. You're like, oh, please don't count them all. If we counted all the stars in our subdivision, one per second, it would take 2,500 years just to count the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And God says about himself, you, you, you want to know how the universe is telling us that God is big? Through the prophet Isaiah, he says, to whom will you compare me? And who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes to the heavens. Who created all of these. And then he answers for himself. The one who leads forth the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his mighty strength and great power, not one of them is missing. If you want to get a glimpse of it, here's a composite shot of our subdivision. The Milky Way galaxy is taken by combining hundreds of thousands of photographs. Obviously, we haven't managed to get outside of the Milky Way galaxy to take a picture of it, but um, NASA folks are pretty sure that's what it looks like. It has a a barred nucleus. It's a barred spiral galaxy. And you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's 100,000 light years across. So if you want to go visit your neighbors on the other side of the subdivision, you just have to go 186,000 miles a second for 100,000 years, and boom, you're at their house. in our little neighborhood home called the Milky Way Galaxy, you say, well, where are we? I'm, I'm looking for us on there. You know, we, we got to be right in the center, obviously. I'm sure we're right, in that, right there in that middle. No, we, believe it or not, we're not even in the center of our own subdivision, okay? So affirming again tonight, it's not about you and it's not about me. We don't even live in the center of our own subdivision. And you don't want to live in the center of the subdivision because it's scary in the center of the subdivision. We, you say, well, where do we live? Well, we live way out between a couple of the spiral arms. You don't want to live in there either because that's dangerous territory inside the bands. We live in that little clear zone between a couple of the bands, about two-thirds of the way out. We're living somewhere about there. 
And you're, you're like, well, I don't, I don't see me. No. Because we couldn't put a mark on the diagram that you could see that would be the right relative size to our solar system. You know, that's our little cul-de-sac in the subdivision that we couldn't even put our solar system on here in relative size to the Milky Way galaxy for you to see. It's that small inside the Milky Way galaxy. Scientists say our solar system is the size of a quarter and the Milky Way galaxy is the size of the North American continent. So our whole solar system is a quarter and the size of an area as big as the North American continent. We're not that consequential in our own subdivision <laughs> called the Milky Way galaxy. And somewhere in there is a star, one of these billions of stars. It's not the biggest, the baddest, the brightest. It's just one of the stars, the billions of stars. We call it the sun and around it tonight are orbiting these balls, one of which is called Earth. It's our home. That's you and me. No, I'm not trying to make you feel small. I'm trying to help you see that you are small. But it's significant insignificance. Because as tiny as we are, we are known and prized by majesty. Who sent for us and loves us and knows us. Even though we are teeny tiny little bitty people. On a little bitty speck floating through the vast cosmos that he has made. Just like he could name every star as he called them into being and put them in their places. He could start in this building tonight all the way up in the top with you right there. And he could call you by your name. And he could move to you and call you by your name. And you by your name. And the great creator of all the heavens and the earth could move through this auditorium and call every single person in this building by name tonight. He knows us and is aware of us and loves us and has come to invite us into a relationship with him that will never, ever end. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? You know, uh, young people will cheer about anything. Hey, we're small. Yeah, yeah, we're small. That's great. Thank you. Has he ever called you by name? He calls us by name. I hope you've heard him call you by name. If you haven't, you just need to listen. Because he calls you. He calls you directly, personally. Because he knows you. And he loves you. And he loves every single person on this planet. And he wants every single person on this planet to know him. To experience his love. He created them for himself. He didn't create us for each other. He created us first for him. Yes. And that is the wonder of it all, is it not? I want our praise team to come. And I want to simply remind you that if you're, you're here, obviously. You're well enough to be here, which is good. We have people battling the flu, and we really don't want them here. But we have been praying for them, Ash and... Little Colton, 
we just need to keep them in prayers and need to pray over ourselves for protection. But I want you to stand with me. And here's what I'd like for you to do this morning. This is the first Sunday of the year. I think it's I think these are good moments for us to really seriously say to God, reconstruct me. Remake me. Get more out of me. I'm breathing. I'm alive. I, I have the capacity to encourage someone, as Dr. Elko said. Spend your life encouraging someone.